we are going over, uh, we are in a series right now where I'm inviting you to membership. Um, some, some of you have been attending for a while, and um, I would like now to remove ambiguity about your relationship to the church. So um, I can't see you out there because I don't have my glasses on and I don't have contacts in. But um, I'm, you know who you are. I'm looking at the Alvarengas. I'm looking at Ben right there. Someone's waving their hand. I can't see who it is. I'm going to name names here. But I'm inviting you to membership. You know I love you guys. Um, our church truly believes in membership. That'll be next week where I talk about the logic behind membership and church discipline. But we do believe in membership. And so for the past two weeks, now three weeks, including this Sunday, I've been inviting you to membership, and the way I've been doing that is by clearly explaining the convictions of this church and the commitments which flow out of those convictions. That's my strategy for inviting you to membership. This is not an invitation that tells you how great um, this church is going to be, my, my, some amazing vision I have. All I'm doing is, is explaining the convictions, theological convictions of this church, and the commitments which flow out of those convictions. And if the Lord wants to use this church for his glory, praise God. That's kind of where we're going in this series, or where we've been. So, the, over the last two weeks, we've talked about the gospel, and we've talked about the word. The first week, I talked about the fact that our unifying principle is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that God has acted through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to reveal who he is, to reconcile us to himself, and to rule the earth and establish his kingdom and to make all things new. That's the gospel. That's what unifies us. So we are not a church that's driven by um, an attractional model or a consumeristic model. We are, what unifies us is not those things. What unifies us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, last week, we talked about the fact that we are deliberately word-driven. Not just that we are word-driven, but that we are deliberately word-driven. Meaning that I think the best way, the best thing for us to do in this church is to look into the word and be transformed by the renewing of our mind and then to obey what it says out of our discipleship to Jesus Christ. And the way I would like to affect that is through, um, in the future, courses, almost a catechism-like structure to our church. That's what we're doing on Wednesday nights. We're explicating the Christian faith. We're talking about why we believe Scripture is the Word of God, who God is, what he is like, how he has acted to redeem us, what the church is, who the Holy Spirit is, who Christ is, his two natures, the last things. We're talking about basic doctrines of the faith. And then I would love to have classes on spiritual formation that teach you how to grow as a Christian. And we have done that in the spiritual growth campaign over the last two years. We would have We'll have courses on whole biblical theologies and then sort of elective courses on um, raising a family 
and your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And um, so that's, that's our vision. That's our vision for this church. Being a church with the word is embraced, cherished, loved, understood, and obeyed. This week, now those are two things to die for. Now remember last week I gave you the four Ds. There are doctrines to die for. There are doctrines to divide over. There are doctrines to debate. And there are doctrines to decide. The gospel and the word of God, I think, are doctrines to die for. Um, and, and people have died for those things. This week I'm talking about something that is not worth dying for. Uh, but I am talking about an important conviction or sets of convictions um, that drive this church. And the conviction is, or how should I put this? What I'd like to bring forth to you today as part of our invitation to membership is the fact that we are Baptistic in our ecclesiology. That means in regards to our doctrine of the church, what the church is and how a church functions at the local level, we are Baptistic in the way we understand those things. This does not mean we're attached to a Baptist denomination. We are not Southern Baptists. We're not North American Baptists, but we are Baptistic in our ecclesiology by way of background. When this was Valley Bible Baptist Church, when we were Valley Bible, we did um, join the Southern Baptist Convention. When we replanted as Church of the Vine, we decided not to re-up with the Southern Baptist Convention because there is a lot of fragmentation in that denomination. There are a lot of good churches in that denomination, but I thought it best, we thought it best, not to re-up with the de denomination that was so fragmented in their beliefs. There's a lot of debate going on. And so rather than be part of that, we are just an independent or non-denominational church that holds to Baptistic ecclesiology. What I'd like to do is give you some points today to tell you why we hold to Baptistic ecclesiology and what it is. Okay, so you ready? Some points as to why we are Baptistic in our ecclesiology and what that even means. Now, I would have you open your Bible if you have it, but you're going to be flipping pages really fast today. If you have a pen and you want to see um, or look into, like a Berean, the things I've said and test them to see whether they're true, I suggest you write down the verses I'm going to give you. Um, also, this will be online. Brother Jeff is good enough to put these up on Sermon Audio every week and YouTube every week, so you'll be able to go back and check what I say. But uh, first point about Baptistic ecclesiology and Baptists in general is that Baptists hold to the five solas of the Reformation. Baptists hold to the five solas of the Reformation. The Reformation, as you know, was began with Martin Luther when he posted the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door, which opposed 
the Catholic Church, the abuses of the Catholic Church, specifically with regards to the sale of indulgences and a lot of other things which uh, flowed out of that. And so a group of Christians broke off from the Catholic Church and that movement became known as the Reformation because those people had in mind to reform the church. Based on what? The five solas are the what and the why of the Reformation. They are, the, they are what distinguish the theology of the Reformation churches from Catholic churches. Here they are. Number one, sola means only. Scripture alone is the first sola. This means that Scripture is the final authority for faith and practice for a Christian. It is the final authority for faith and practice. How do you know what to believe and how do you know what to do as a disciple of Christ? The Bible. That's Scripture alone. This means it's not tradition which tells us what to do. Although we we appreciate our brothers and sisters who have gone before us, the great cloud of witnesses, we do not look to them as authoritative for life and practice. We look to the Word of God first and foremost. This means that councils do not determine what we believe, although we can look to them as a helpful guide and useful. Nor, and also this means that we do not look to ecclesiastical authorities, namely popes and bishops, as our final ruling authority as Protestant Christians who come out of the Reformation. What we hold to as our final authority is Scripture alone. That's the first sola. Second sola is grace alone. Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2.8 says, By grace you are saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Titus 2.11-ish. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So it is God's grace that saves us. This means it does not depend on us following the law to be saved. And it means also too that the church doesn't impart grace to us. It's God alone who imparts grace to us. Grace alone, the second sola. Number three, faith alone. That means that faith is what appropriates the grace of God. This is why we're called to repent and believe, because the way one appropriates the grace of God is not by doing, but by believing that Christ died for your sins, rose again as your King and Lord. And that's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Faith alone is what brings us into a saving relationship with God and makes us part of his body. Hear that last part. 
Faith alone is what brings us into a saving relationship with God and makes us part of his body. What I just said is going to be important for what follows in a minute. Fourth sola is Christ alone. There is The Pope does not mediate your relationship with Christ. The Baptists and the Reformers believed. Um, I do not mediate your relationship with Christ, but we believe in... We believe that there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, who is both God and man. So, it's Christ alone through whom the Father has acted to reconcile man back to himself. That's why um, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18. Last sola, and perhaps the most important sola, and most overarching sola, is the glory of God alone. It's the glory of God alone for why he has redeemed us. Ultimately, that those, so it's not necessarily human flourishing, which is why we're Christians. Although that's certainly part of, I mean, you're going to flourish if you live eternally, right? So I don't want to say it's not human flourishing, but much more important than any horizontal benefit to you and me, or especially to society, which is passing away is the glory of God. And we were made in his image that we might reflect his glory out into creation. We have failed to do that time and time again as humans, but God, being rich in mercy, has now paid the penalty for our sin and given us the power to now put forth his image now through the power of the Holy Spirit. And one day we will be perfected and will be the perfect images of God which he intended to create in Genesis 1. So, Baptists hold to the five solas of the Reformation. This means that Baptists are not Catholics, but are Protestant and Reformed in that sense, that they hold to the five solas, those five great pillars of the Reformation, and those five pillars, as I've tried to show, come out of the scripture, the texts of the Bible. So, are you with me so far? All right. We are brothers with other denominations, brothers and sisters with other denominations who hold to these gospel truths. Presbyterians are my brothers, and... And um, Reformed churches are our brethren. And um, Pentecostals are our brethren. We have dis some disagreements about certain aspects of the Bible, which is why we do not have church with them. Um, ultimately, though, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's principle number one. So Baptists are Reformed in the sense that they come out of the Reformation. Number two, 
Baptists believe that entrance into the people of God, i.e. the church, is only by faith. Baptists believe that entrance into the church as the new covenant people of God is only by faith. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them or if you have a pen to write these verses down. I have six verses I want to share with you, which is why we believe that one enters the church by faith and faith alone. So this is the faith alone sola. Romans 1, 16 and 17. The Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. <clears throat> so, the Apostle Paul is saying in this verse, this passage, that salvation is given to everyone who believes. Therefore, the community of, of the saved, the church, the new covenant people of God, are those who believe. Text number two is Romans three, twenty-seven and 28. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. In this passage, we see that God justifies people based on their faith. So the justified people of God are those who believe. Passage number 3, Romans 10, 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. In this passage, Paul says that belief from the heart is how one appropriates the gospel and is justified. That is, if I believe with my whole heart that Christ, if I believe with my heart that Christ has died for my sins, risen again, and I trust in him from my heart, then I am declared righteous in God's sight. Amen? Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, we have been justified by faith. Or since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So, Paul says, we are justified and have peace with God through faith and it is only by faith that we access God, by faith alone. Number five, John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not 
who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So what makes someone a child of God is not physical birth. They were not born of blood or the will of the flesh, but those who believed in him, he gave the right to become children of God. Do you see that? So what makes you a child of God is not the will of man, nor blood relations, but those who believe become children of God. Uh, last, last verse on this is Ephesians 1.13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You're given the Holy Spirit when you believe. When you, being a Christian is by definition being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. To, it is to be regenerate by the Holy Spirit. The way one, the way this works is you have faith which occasions the reception of the Holy Spirit. And so, when you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So, a Christian is somebody who believes and has the Holy Spirit. So, the new covenant people of God are those who have faith, are justified, become children of God, and are sealed with the Holy Spirit. From these passages, Baptists believe that the new covenant people of God are only comprised of those who have placed faith in Christ. That upholds the faith alone, sola. All right? So that is, bapt that is Baptistic ecclesiology. So the implication is this. Since a person belongs to God by faith, we should not consider a person to be part of the justified, regenerate, new covenant people of God on the basis of their connections with other people. Baptists believe that the church, as the new covenant people of God, is comprised only of regenerate Christians, not of people who are biologically descended from those who are spiritually regenerate. You follow what I'm saying? Baptists believe that the new covenant people of God are those who have been believed it and are therefore justified and regenerate because of faith. And that means that the new we should not consider someone to be part of that body, regenerate, justified body, because they are descended from somebody who is spiritually regenerate. Third, then, and this flows out of that conviction, third conviction, Baptist conviction, is that the sign of entrance into the new covenant should not be applied to infants of unbelieving parents, but only those who make a credible profession of faith themselves. So, theologically speaking, Baptistic ecclesiology believes that baptism is a sign 
of entrance into the new covenant. And it being a sign of entrance in the new covenant should only be applied to those who have in fact entered into the new covenant. Let's turn your Bibles, if you would, to Romans 6, 3 and 4. Romans 6, 3 and 4. I love Romans 6, 7 and 8 because it talks about how God transforms a person. Because as I've said before, salvation is not just divine life insurance. It is transformation. It's the life of God in the soul of man. And you will be changed and transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in you now as a Christian. And this is why you are able to follow the commands of the Lord. You are able to follow the righteous requirements of the law. Romans 8, 3 and 4, where Paul says those very words. But going back to Romans 6, since, again, grace is so misunderstood today, but since you've been given grace, since God, since God responds to sin with grace, why don't we just sin so that grace should abound? That was the misunderstanding then, and I fear it, well, it's what lingers between some misunderstandings today, even among good Reformed churches. Paul says, no, you should not sin so that grace should abound. In fact, something has happened to you which makes that question absurd. Romans 6, 2, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You've died to sin. Sin's over here, and I'm dead to that now. So with respect to sin, I've been cut off from the realm in which sin has dominion over me. That doesn't mean I will never sin, but I am broken from the realm in which that characterizes who I am. Verse 3. Do you not know, now with specifically with reference to baptism, do you not know, the Apostle Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. In this passage, the Apostle Paul says that baptism is a picture of your union with Christ. This means as you go down into the water, you are identifying with the death of Christ. And as you come up from the water, you are identifying with his resurrection from the dead. And this signifies that this has actually taken place in the person. Paul says, do you not know that when you were baptized, you were buried with him and raised with him? So, baptism signifies what is true about you in Christ. It signifies that you've been raised, buried with Christ, raised with him and that you are united to Christ through faith. Galatians 3.27 is the next passage I want to take you to. 
Um, Galatians 3.27, the Apostle Paul says to the Galatians, that's chapter 4, he says to the Galatians, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. So when you've been, when you were baptized into Christ Jesus, you put on Christ. So Paul links baptism so closely with union with Christ because when in the first century you became a Christian, you didn't ask Jesus into your heart, you were baptized. That is how one went public with their faith. And so Paul could link baptism with belief so closely because in this first century context, again I say, the way that you would ask Jesus into your heart or become a Christian and profess faith is by believing and being baptized. So, since baptism, this is the... This is the point. Since baptism signifies union with Christ, and since no one can be, and since one is only united to Christ by faith, Baptists believe that baptism should not be applied to infants who do not yet believe and who are not yet united to Christ. That is Baptistic ecclesiology. So I can summarize it into two steps. Baptist ecclesiology believes in a spiritually regenerate church, meaning those who truly belong to the new covenant, justified people of God, are in fact regenerate by the Holy Spirit because of their faith in Christ. Number two, therefore the symbol of union with Christ and regeneration should only be applied to those who make a credible, credible profession of faith, Baptist ecclesiology. Now, do you get that? That's why, that's why we believe what we believe. That's why we are Baptistic in our ecclesiology. There are obviously people who disagree with what, we just, with what I just said, and maybe even out there, I know some of you who might disagree with what I've just said, um, but that's why I'm preaching this sermon, because I want to clearly tell you why we are um, what we are and why we are what we are. So I want to bring what I just said in conversation with pedo-baptists, that is people who believe, who are convinced that we should baptize infants. Um, pedo-baptists believe two things. They believe the opposite of what I just said. They believe that baptism as a sign of the new covenant should be applied to infants. And they believe that the church is made up of both believers and unbelievers, of both regenerate and unregenerate persons, of both Christians and those who are children of Christians. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 74, um, says, asks the question, should infants be baptized? The answer to the Heidelberg that the Heidelberg Catechism gives is yes. Infants, as well as adults, are in God's covenant and are his people. 
They, no less than adults, are promised the forgiveness of sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who, pro who produces faith. Therefore, by baptism, the mark of the, of the covenant, infants should be received into the Christian church. There's more to that, but I want to stop there. So the Heidelberg Catechism says that, yes, the sign of baptism should be applied to infants. Why? Because they can receive forgiveness just like adults can. And therefore, baptism as, a, as the mark of the new covenant, we should apply that to infants and they should be therefore received into the Christian church. So they believe that um, baptism brings somebody into the new covenant community, infant Baptists. Um, why do they believe this? They believe this because baptism in their reading of the Bible replaces circumcision. So they, they have a basis for this. It's not just a lingering vestige from um, leftover from the Reformation period, but they, they have a biblical basis for why they believe that they should baptize infants. And I respect that. So they believe that just as someone was brought into the Old Covenant community in the Old Testament by circumcision, now a person is brought into the New Covenant community in the New Covenant by baptism. Um, so that's the logic. And so therefore, the church is not a regenerate community. That goes too far in their mind. The church is a... Um, mixed community of people who are regenerate and not yet regenerate, although they hope that by applying baptism to them, the sign that that signifies will be true in the future, but it is not yet true because obviously an infant cannot yet place saving faith in Jesus Christ. So yes, they should baptize infants, Yes, the church is a mixed community for our Presbyterian and Reformed brothers. Um, so what do I say in response to this as an explanation to show you where we are as a church, um, what we, we do, what we believe as a church? I would say, yes, circumcision has been replaced. However, what has replaced circumcision, as I read the Bible— and as other Baptists has re have, re have read the Bible, what has replaced circumcision is not baptism, but circumcision of the heart. The outward sign of circumcision has been replaced in the new covenant, I believe, by the inward transformation of the Holy Spirit, which Paul calls circumcision of the heart. So the outward symbol has been fulfilled now by an inward transformation. This is why the prophets prophesied in the Old Testament about a new heart and spirit being given to the people of Israel. Why? Because they were all, at least the males, were all circumcised. But the problem was, if you read 
um, judges, for example, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and they left the Lord. So the sign of circumcision, which marked them out as God's people, their lives contra- con- constantly contradicted that sign. So the way they lived their lives contradicted the sign that they bore, in other words. And so this is why the prophets prophesied about a time when God is not going to just deal with the outward, but he's actually going to give you a new heart and transform you inwardly by the Holy Spirit. I've got a few passages to read you on this. Ezekiel eleven nineteen and 20 is a good example passage. Ezekiel says, And I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. That is the promise of the new covenant. What is promised here is not another outward symbol, but an inward transformation of the heart. In Romans 8, this is fulfilled. Romans 8, 3 through 4 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the one, is the who, who gives us the ability to now follow God the way we're always meant to, thus bringing to fulfillment passages like Ezekiel eleven nineteen and 20, where God is going to take their heart and give them a heart of flesh and put his spirit in them. That is the new covenant. So the problem of the old covenant outward ritualistic religion has been resolved in the, by the new covenant's outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The new covenant resolves the problem. Another passage which I will point to, along with a lot of Baptist brethren, is Jeremiah 31. Um, oh, I'm sorry, before I get there, another good one is Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Ezekiel again prophesies about a new covenant. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness, and from all of your idols that I will cleanse you. So clean water. The Holy Spirit in Ezekiel 11, now he's saying clean water. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put on you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in all my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The themes in Ezekiel for the New Covenant is spirit and water, which is why you do not need to be puzzled when Jesus says, unless one is born of water and the spirit. 
he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He is referring to this new covenant promise in Ezekiel. Last verse from the prophets I want to give you is Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. It's not like that one. My covenant that they broke Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That is the covenant that God makes with his people. So the problem with Israel was circumcision did not match their lives. The sign they bore did not match the lives they lived. God's solution to this was not to give another outward sign, baptism, but to effect an inward transformation of the heart, regeneration. So, going to the New Testament, I have one more verse to share with you. Going to the New Testament, Who is a true Jew? Who are the people of God? Who are God's covenant people? Paul answers that in Romans 2, 28-29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward or physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praises, not from man, but from God. In this passage, Paul juxtaposes circumcision, not with baptism, but with circumcision of the heart. So, the outward sign has been replaced by an inward change of the heart. So, Baptists disagree that circumcision is replaced by, or that baptism is is replaced by circumcision. Wait, I'm going to get this. Baptists disagree that that baptism is replaced by (laughs) circumcision. Circumcision is not being replaced by baptism. Thank you. We get it. Preach it. I got this. So, what she said. (laughs) So, we disagree that there was circumcision and now that's fulfilled in baptism. We believe that there was circumcision of the flesh. Now, there is circumcision of the heart. Um, We see circumcision of the flesh being replaced by circumcision of the spirit. Therefore, baptism does not bring us into a new covenant community. We do not think that baptism brings us into the church. Rather, baptism, we believe, is the outward sign of the inward transformation, as Paul seems to imply in Romans 6, 
3 and 4, that we were buried with Christ and raised with him. And Galatians 3, 27, that when we were baptized in the Christ, we put on Christ. So baptism is going public with your faith. That's what it is. It doesn't actually bring you into the new covenant community. What brings you into the new covenant community is faith in Christ. Then, through faith, you receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. This is why in Acts, it's those who received the word were baptized in Acts 2. Now, I lay this before you because I just want to be very clear. And I take this out a Sunday, preaching Sunday, out to explain this because I feel as if, and I've sensed as if, in many churches, and in our church as well, there's just confusion about this issue. So I just wanted to take this time to teach this and tell you where we stand on this issue. Now, a few things. I'd like to say four comments on Baptistic ecclesiology. Number one, this is not something to die for. Again, the gospel is, the word of God is, but this is not something to die for. Although, Presbyterians were killing Baptists for this in the 1600s. <laughs> so, just saying, yeah. <laughs> but this is not something to die for. Um, now, on that note, there is disagreement in the church on this issue. And there are people that are much smarter than me that disagree with me on this and might be able to try to pick apart everything I've said today. Uh, if you'd like to see another side of this, I think a good article to start with is by Kevin DeYoung, who has a little article called A Brief Defense of Infant Baptism. And you could just Google that online and it'll come up. Kevin DeYoung's A Brief Defense of Infant Baptism. And he actually gives you other books and articles as well, along with other articles which say why I change my mind about believer's baptism and now agree with infant baptism. So you can see that side. Um, so, not something to die for, and people disagree on this issue. And it is, it gets complex, but I've just tried to lay out as clear as possible why Baptistic, why Baptists believe this issue, believe that um, believers only should be baptized as a profession of faith. Secondly, it is important, though. I do think it's not something to die for, but I do think it is important. Baptistic ecclesiology is about clarifying the distinction between the church and the world. That's really at the heart of it. Baptists are really focused, focused on trying their best to clarify the distinction between the church in the world. We want to be a peculiar people, salt and light, a city set up on a hill. And therefore, it's not just a matter of who should we baptize. It's a matter of who are the people of God. And Baptists want to say very clearly that the people of God are those who have faith. The righteous will live by faith. And therefore, no one is being brought into the new covenant community through an outward symbol of baptism, but only through 
transformation of the heart by the Holy Spirit. That's the only way that you're brought into the new covenant people of God. It's not a mixed community. It is invisible, but it is not mixed. There is the regenerate and the unregenerate. This is why we only baptize those who make a credible profession of faith. This is also why Baptists are very key, keen on membership. Because who, who, is a part of, who is a part of the local church? It's not just anyone who happens to walk in the door on Sunday. It is those who have covenanted with that local church to commit themselves to the ministry of the church, submit themselves to the elders of the church um, in the biblical sense, support the work of the church, and lock arms with that community. That is who Church of the Vine is. It's not just anyone who walks in the door. It's those who have intentionally locked arms with brothers and sisters. So it's a commitment. It's a committed community. And this, I think, maps right on to what Acts 2 says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, and to the fellowship. They did not, they did not loosely associate with the fellowship or sometimes attend temple with the fellowship, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. So there is an intentional and deliberate decision. So that's why Baptists are keen on membership to maintain that distinction between the church and the world. And this is why we've been keen on church discipline, which I will talk about next week, because we do not want sin to run rampant in the church and pretend like everything is okay. There's only been one case in the two years of our existence as Church of the Vine where we've actually had to exercise church discipline on somebody. It is not a pleasant thing. We do not revel in it at all, but we do it as out of obedience to Christ because we believe it is in the Scripture. More on that next week. If we shouldn't baptize our children, and third, if we should not baptize our children, what should we do with them? <laughs> what should we do with them if we're not baptizing them? Dedicate. I would, Brother uh, Jeff said, dedicate their baby. I would gladly dedicate a child to the Lord. Um, and dedication, as I understand it, is your promise to the infant. It's your promise to the infant, too, and the parent's promise to the infant. Um, but what else should we do with our children? You should prepare them for baptism. That's what you should do with your children. You should prepare them to be baptized. That means preach the gospel to them. That means read them the Bible. That means catechize them and model godliness to them. That's what we believe, and that's what we do as a church. Um, and here's something you need to decide. So I said this is not a doctrine to die over. Is this a doctrine to divide over? That's up to you. I don't think necessarily that this is a, a, 
something that you need to divide over. We do reserve membership for those who, who agree with us on this issue because a lot of implications flow out of it. <clears throat> but if you think that you can come to this church, sow into the work, be part of what we're doing, um, even in an informal sense, I invite you to do so. Um, and we love you and we're glad you're here. And we're, we're glad that other people are here as well. Um, so that is, that's your choice. If this is a doctrine to divide over, that's up to you. That's up to you. Um, we won't be baptizing babies here, but we will love them. We are starting a children's church in two weeks or three weeks, two, three weeks, and we're going to catechize them. We're going to teach them the Bible. So we love our kids, we love our children, and, um, and that's what we're going to do with them. Try to raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So, in summary then, Baptistic theology is the idea that everyone who is part of the church is a Christian. That's what Baptists believe. Everyone who is part of the New Covenant people of God is in fact justified and regenerate through faith. That's what we believe as Baptists. And therefore, we hold baptism until somebody makes a credible profession of faith and it is a joyous occasion. Um, it is the initiatory right into the people of God. Now, based on that belief that the church is a regenerate community, Next week, we're going to talk about membership, church discipline, and I believe um, congregationalism, which all flow out of this principle. Membership means that we are made up of those who have locked arms with us. Church discipline means that the church will testify to grievous sin by making a formal decision and choosing not to treat somebody as if their relationship with God is okay when it is in fact not. And congregationalism is the idea that the power, the ruling power of a local church rests in the congregation, not ecclesiastical authorities, not popes, not even ultimately or finally the elders, but the final court of appeal is the congregation themselves with the elders. And this all flows out of the bigger umbrella belief that the church is a regenerate community. Praise God. If you have any questions, I'd love to answer them. Any questions? All right. Or you can ask me after service. I don't mind answering questions here, though. All right. Well, praise God. I'm glad you're here today. Um, don't forget Bible study on Wednesday. And um, we'll get to you on prayer meeting, perhaps, as well th next week. Let's close in a word of prayer. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only wise God be glory and majesty and power and dominion through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, before all time and forevermore. Amen and amen. If anyone would like special prayer... I'd love to pray with you. God bless you.